Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. This is our 100th episode. That's a pretty exciting milestone for us. To mark the occasion, we're celebrating with an extra special guest. Today, we'll be joined by Samin Nasrat, the New York Times bestselling author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. I've spent my entire life in pursuit of flavor. I've traveled the world to explore the things that define good cooking. Let me get some forks. Coming up, Samin will share some of that culinary wisdom with us, and she'll also highlight the important role California plays. I think for me, I love it here because there's everything. It's such a diverse state. There's so many different cultures, and with that culture, with all those cultures comes food. Also, we'll learn what Samin likes to do for fun in the Golden State, and she'll tell us a little bit about what it was like to work at one of the country's most famous restaurants, Chez Panisse in Berkeley. That's all coming up on California Now. We are thrilled to welcome a very special guest to celebrate our 100th episode of California Now. She's a New York Times bestselling author, a James Beard Award winner, and the star of a Netflix series based on her bestselling cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Chef Samin Nasrat is also a proud Californian and an alum of the legendary restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Samin, welcome to California Now. Thank you so much for having me. I always love talking about California. Yeah, so I mean, there is so much ground we want to cover with you. But first, tell us about growing up in Southern California. I mean, how did your early years shape your career? I would have never guessed that I would become a cook, but I've always loved eating. So, um, and that begins, you know, before I was even born. My family is from Iran, and my parents moved to San Diego in the late 70s. I was born in 1979. And my mom made it a priority to really make sure that my brothers and I learned about our culture. And the main way that that happened was through our food. And she was an extraordinary cook, and um, she still is. And so she really spent a lot of energy cooking for us, but also in the procurement <laughs> of the ingredients. And, you know, there's quite a large Iranian community in Southern California. And so with all of the people came many of the ingredients. And so it actually wasn't super complicated for her to recreate the dishes of Iran. And um, for example, my grandparents in Northern Iran lived on an orange orchard. And so, as you know, in Southern California, there's citrus orchards everywhere. So that part, I think, was very familiar. There was a lot about the landscape that was really familiar to the place my parents had come from. And so many of the ingredients, the herbs that sort of make up Persian cuisine, you know, are bountiful bountiful here. And we, we were in San Diego, but there are so many great um, Iranian groceries in Orange County and in Los Angeles. So sometimes we would make this 88-mile drive to this uh, grocery store called Wholesome Choice that's still there in Irvine (laughs) and buy the fresh breads. And um, there was a rule at the bakery. They had this beautiful oven. It's called, um, it's it's kind of mimicking this traditional oven in Iran to make this bread, uh, sangak bread. And it's called called sangak because the word sang means stones or pebbles. And so in Iran, the ovens are lined with like river pebbles. So the bread gets sort of dimpled. And so they have one of these special ovens 
at Wholesome Choice, but there are so many people who come from so far to buy the bread that they have instituted a rule, at least on weekends, when I think it was a limit of like two or three per person. And so my mom would fill the car with all the kids so that we could all stand in line so she could buy the maximum. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> amount of bread. <laughs> that was, I would say, like, if you cut me open, I'm like a pie chart. I'm probably like half Persian food, half Mexican food, which also is so plentiful in Southern California. Right, right, right. And I, oh, yeah, that's, that's and I fun. grew up eating a lot of that. But, but my mom really didn't encourage me to help in the kitchen. She wanted me, you know, doing my homework. Oh, that's funny. I mean, I was going to ask you if you did, if you cooked a lot growing up, but you're saying you that she really she didn't want you in the kitchen because what she just wanted you to become a doctor or something. Yeah, doctor, lawyer, engineer. It was like <laughs> you came, you know, we came all this way for you to have better lives. And so she didn't want me to do manual labor. (laughs) And so, um, and it didn't even cross my mind. Like I first wanted to be a doctor. And then at some point in high school, I realized I loved writing and poetry and I wanted to be an English major. So, which also was a disappointment to my parents. (laughs) But um, yeah, so there is a way I think like the landscape of Southern California is in me the flavors of sort of Mexico and Iran and where they converge are in me. And that's probably how California affected me. And, and like your per- Persian culture, you're saying basically kind of played a role in, in your, in your upbringing through the, the cuisine. I mean, that, that was the major force of kind of learning about your heritage. Absolutely. Because it was a daily thing, right? So whereas there might be like um, an annual holiday or, um, like my brothers and I went to Persian school for a few years on Saturdays to learn how to read and write. But there were not, because even though there is quite a large community beyond our own family and and sort of extended family, we actually didn't have a huge expansive Persian community that we were a part of. So I didn't have like rituals and traditions passed down to me in any like meaningful way. It was really the food was the ritual. And so some of these like other, I mean, obviously like citrus, as you say, is easy to come by. So what were some of these other ingredients, like these herbs that uh, that you your mom would kind of take you out to procure so she can she could, you know, make all of the Persian meals that you kind of grew up on? There were all these um, international markets. They still are all over San Diego and all over sort of the major towns of California. And there was one called North Park Grocery that was mostly basically just a sort of all- Middle Eastern market, not a specifically Persian one. And so they would just have like mountains of fresh mint and cilantro and parsley and tarragon. And Persians eat herbs sort of like by the kilo, not by the bunch. (laughs) So you can always, I always say you, you can always spot a Persian at the grocery store. Like they have a lot of fruit, a lot of cucumbers and a lot of herbs in their basket. And then the other thing that I loved going to the grocery store was everyone in our family had a different relationship to feta cheese. It was never like, you just go to the store and buy some feta. Like we had to go to the North Park grocery or another Middle Eastern market and get, you know, like half a pound of French feta for, you know, for me, like half a pound of Danish feta for my mom, half a pound of (laughs) Bulgarian feta for my dad, because they all are so different. They have different flavor and texture and saltiness and, um, And so later when I grew up and like, you know, Trader Joe's opened in Southern California and we got one and you could buy all the different cheeses and stuff. And there was like pre-crumbled feta. 
that was truly like a confusing thing to me. Still, I'm like, why would you buy pre-crumbled feta? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, my background is, is Greek, so I under, totally understand oh, that. Like, yeah. Why would you buy pre-crumbled feta? I mean, you want to crumble your own feta, right? Exactly. It's like so much. It's like the joy of the feta. <laughs> now, you didn't stay in SoCal, though. I mean, you moved up north to the Bay Area for college where you eventually found yourself working at one of the most famous restaurants in the country, Chez Panisse. So tell us how you ended up there. Yeah, so I came to Berkeley in 1997 for college, and at my um, freshman orientation, I think one of the people said, oh, there's this famous restaurant here called Chez Panisse. And that sort of went like, it did it barely registered with me because I did not grow up eating in any sort of fancy or famous restaurant. My mom was a great cook. Sometimes we would drive to Orange County to have kebabs at a Persian restaurant. And then, you know, we had Mexican food and Chinese food and pizza, but we, there was no like fine dining to speak of where where we were. So, um, and also this was before, you know, there was a sort of like, it was 97, it was very early internet. There were not food blogs yet. There were not, there was not the culture of celebrity cooking, celebrity chefs. There was barely a food network. You know, it was just not a thing that, people, certainly people like me paid attention to. And so I, you know, when they were like, oh, you can have your parents take you to this restaurant when they come to town. That was sort of the suggestion during the orientation. I was like, maybe white people's parents, not my parents. Like my sophomore year, I um, fell in love and my boyfriend was from San Francisco. And a big way that we spent our time together was sort of going to places to eat and explore food. And he took me to all of his favorite childhood restaurants like Golden Boy Pizza in San Francisco. And, um, you know, we would go to the cheese board in Berkeley and just buy like, I remember there, it's that moment when you're 18 years old or whatever, and you're like, a double cream brie. And then you're like, a triple cream brie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Right. You're just like, what are these things? You know, um, we would eat, you know, like it was just sort of my world was expanding. And he had always wanted to eat at Chez Panisse. So we saved our money for eight months um, in a shoebox and we saved $220 so we could go eat there. And we did. And it was this really special meal. And we had a friend who was a busser there. So he had sort of told them that we had saved our money. And I think they found that really charming. And um, yeah, we had this really nice meal. And I just, for me, more than the food, I remember that we were sort of doted upon in a way I had never been doted upon in a restaurant. And the dessert came and it was chocolate souffle. And the um, woman asked, oh, have you ever had souffle before? And I said, no. And she said, would you like me to show you how to eat it? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, you just poke a hole in it with your spoon and you pour this sauce in. And it was a raspberry sauce. And that way you get you get sauce in every bite. So I did that and I took a bite and she said, how is it? And I said, oh, it's so good. But you know what would make it even better would be some cold milk. And she was like, what? <laughs> she's like you want milk and I was like yeah 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 you know like a warm brownie cold milk and so she kind of was like this girl has no taste and so she went and got me milk and then she sort of brought us each a taste of dessert wine to show us like the refined accompaniment but um I still I still maintain that like a you know brownie and cold milk is a good combo so um, oh, absolutely yeah <laughs> and so then we yeah and i worked my way through college and i always had jobs so i was so inspired that i wrote a letter and i brought my resume there and i asked for a job as a busser and they were like oh you have to go talk to the floor manager so I, they kind of led me to her office and i knocked on the door and she opened it and it was the souffle lady and so we recognized each other and you know i also now having like many years of restaurant experience under my belt 
suspect that she was probably desperate for help because she hired me like she's like you can start tomorrow <laughs> you oh, know? That's can you start <laughs> now like in 20 yeah. minutes <laughs> <laughs> so i started and um i was pretty much like immediately just enchanted by this place i'd never worked anywhere like that where everybody cared so much and was just such a perfectionist and like there was a system for everything there was a system for how to take the trash out you had to like tie it with a certain kind of twine and put it in the can just so and so like there was so much care in everything and there was a really strong sense of community and i had longed for that and so i i fell into it pretty pretty immediately and within a month i was asking them if i could volunteer in the kitchen and then you know i kind of as i was nearing graduation i was an english major and i had this feeling like i don't know what i'm going to do with my life like i don't think I can just get a job like a get an Ann Taylor suit and go work in a cubicle doing marketing like I didn't know that was not my I didn't know how to do any of those things and it seemed just so far away from like what I wanted even if I didn't know what I wanted so mm-hmm. I really you knew loved, what you didn't want yeah and I loved this place where I got to go every day and it was so inspiring and the cooks were just like everyone respected the cooks so much and they could kind of do anything they could cook anything and I always say Chez Panisse is a temple to the senses because I really got this incredible sensory education there. Like I learned about flowers. I learned about, you know, how to make a beautiful display. I learned that it's important to take care in the way you set a table and and that it's important to take care in all of the sensory details of a meal because that's what makes people feel really good. So I um, begged them for an opportunity in the kitchen. And before that was available, there was a driving job available because they have a, a driver who drives all over sort of in, within a 200 mile radius to pick up produce and meat and firewood and, um, you know, pick like wild herbs on the seashore and just do all these kinds of things. And here I was being like, desperate to get in the kitchen they were offering me a driving driving this like old van and I was like Ugh. but the chef said no no it'll be really good for you you should do it so I did it and it was it was this amazing education both in this landscape sort of further afield from from Berkeley where I had spent most of my time you know I didn't travel too far away so I learned about Sonoma and Napa and Marin and you know, farther sort of east, like Vacaville. And there would be places where I would go and pick up all sorts of different produce from farms. I would go to the farmer's market, which is now in the Ferry Plaza in San Francisco. And at the time they were still building it out. So they had this sort of temporary market in a parking lot across the street. And this is before cell phones. So they would give me a list of stuff to pick up at the market. And some of it they had pre-ordered and other stuff they just said, oh, I need 50 pounds of fava beans or something. But I didn't know how to choose a good fava bean. You know, he's like, make sure to get the best fava beans. But I didn't know what made the fava beans the best. And so <laughs> so I couldn't like just text a picture to them and say, does this look right? Right. Or even Google it. Right? Yeah. I mean, there was none of that. Exist. And so right. so I just, you know, it was a really high stress job. And I would go and I'd talk to all the farmers. And I really learned about produce in this amazing way. It was an incredible education, both in the landscape and in the produce. When did your love of cooking start to emerge? Like what drew you to the kitchen? I think a big part of it was the cooks were like rock stars, honestly. Like they just wore these gleaming white cooks and there was a way where like people looked up, everyone in the restaurant sort of looked up to them and deferred to them and took care of them. And that was so special to me. And the way that they could sort of make anything with their hands, like I had never been that kind of a person 
I could barely do like doodles, you know? And so, <laughs> and so that just seemed so, and also every day, you know, you go there and you eat staff meal before you start and then you eat staff meal at the end of the night and you're eating this most delicious food. And these are the people who are making these things that, you know, I remember the first time I had an arancino, like the fried rice ball, fried risotto ball. And I just start like, it was like tears came to my eyes. I'd never had something so delicious. There were just so many things like that, that especially in my first calendar year there, because it's gone going through all of the seasons, all of the produce, there were things where I just couldn't believe how delicious it was. And these were the people who made it. And could I learn to do that? And so I, I begged them for an, an internship and eventually they said yes. And so I, I, I did time in the pastry kitchen. I did time in the cafe. I did time downstairs. And, you know, they had given me this huge stack of cookbooks to learn from, to sort of read and and be inspired from and educate myself from along the way. And I remember at some point I went there and um, I just couldn't understand how every single day I'd go to work and we'd be making a totally different meal from a totally different country. And none of the cooks ever consulted recipes. They just all knew how to make everything. And that seemed so overwhelming. Like, how would I get from this point where I'm sort of, you know, microscopically poring over cookbooks to just knowing everything and knowing how to do anything. Oh, that's incredible. And then you also, you know, got the opportunity to work under one of the world's most famous chefs, Alice Waters. I mean, what was she like as a mentor? I mean, what were some of the most important lessons she taught you? Well, in the beginning, I was so such a peon, I'll say, <laughs> that um, I did not spend much time around Alice. And there are so many other people there in the kitchen doing amazing work. So I learned from people like David Tannis, who um, now like writes a column for the New York Times. And Chris Lee was my mentor. And, you know, so many wonderful chefs who've gone on to do their own things. But, you know, over time, I did get to know Alice And over many, over the course of many, many years. And, you know, I will say the thing that I respect so much about her is she does not compromise on her vision. And so that I think a lot of times for me as a cook, I would be responsible or among the people responsible for bringing one of her visions to life. (laughs) And she uh, has a talent for choosing um, the most impossible visions. And so things like uh, one time um, when Barack Obama was inaugurated, they started, there was a group of chefs who started these fundraising dinners in Washington, D.C., and they would come from all over the country to cook these dinners in different people's homes simultaneously. And so over the years, that tradition has continued, and it happens usually around the State of the Union address on, in January, and it raises money for some incredible organizations. And so one of the years I went with Alice, and we started planning it in October, and she was like, oh, I want this, I want this, we'll be able to get lamb from so-and-so, and I want to make sure we're going to have like a green salad, a garden salad, but everything has to be local, everything has to be from Washington, D.C., so figure it out. So here I start like, you know, I just like pull up all the websites of the farmer's markets. I get in touch with the people who run the farmer's markets. I start calling farms. I start to understand that in January in Washington, D.C., there are no lettuces. Um, so then I call a whole bunch of different farmers and farms and bet and to explain what we're doing. And, you know, that Alice would really like to have green salad for 100 people at this dinner. And could you please plant your lettuces in your greenhouse, you know, nine to 11 weeks in advance 
so that they'll be ready for this dinner and we will be so grateful. Oh my, they must have thought you were crazy. I mean, they thought I was insane. And so (laughs) stuff like that. But then you know what? We found somebody and they did it and it was beautiful. So it was this thing where like it caused me so much stress, but also because she would not compromise and she wanted this thing, it came to life. And so there's a lot of that where your first reaction is awful, like is often that'll never happen. You know, that's impossible. It was in the early 2000s, Michael Pollan had written this article in the New York Times Magazine about the beef industry and um, and sort of sort of demonstrated in his writing the superiority, at least environmentally, of of grass-fed beef. And so Alice sort of, you know, heard about this article and then immediately decreed no more beef that's not grass-fed at Chez Panisse, only grass-fed beef. And the chefs were like, what? Like, because because there was no, um, it was really hard at that time. It was still so early in the grass-fed beef, like part of that industry that there wasn't very much available. And what was available was was grown by people who didn't really understand sort of the the chemistry of raising beef on grass because they'd sort of, they'd just switched from corn. And it's a totally different thing. And, you know, it's about building fat and in the muscles and, So the beef didn't taste very good. It was really tough and sort of stinky. So these chefs felt like the rug had been pulled out from under them because now like this important ingredient has been taken away, you know? And so, and so we were like, we're a vault, you know? But in the end, what happened was because she held her line and Chez Panisse worked with farmers to get beef tasting good. Then what happened? All these other people started raising grass-fed beef. And now you can go out and get, you know, now it's 23 years later and you can go out and get the most delicious grass-fed beef, you know, pretty much at any butcher shop. So it's stuff like that where like I've seen it happen in real time that her sort of stubbornness and refusal to compromise actually creates changes in the real world. That's pretty incredible. And to to kind of like kind of learn that lesson so early in life. I mean, have you applied that in like in your work in, in any way? Kind of. I mean, I think is... anyone who's worked with me would agree that I'm also stubborn and <laughs> impossible to please. <laughs> okay. So you learned that lesson pretty well, yeah. <laughs> but also I think having also been on the other side of the of the thing, I do try to sort of give where I can give a little. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and then eventually, like you ended up leaving Chez Panisse and you went on to to author, you know, that very famous cookbook in 2017. <laughs> it became a New York Times bestseller, it won a James Beard Award and became, you know, a hit Netflix series. I'm, of course, talking about salt, fat, acid, heat. Um, tell us the story there. Like what sparked the book? So actually, when I was still a very young cook and I was watching these cooks, you know, come in every day and they almost never used recipes, maybe for like something really sort of persnickety, like a souffle, there might be a recipe. But for other things, it was just a vague set of instructions from the chef, and then they would just go make it. And I didn't know how everyone sort of intuitively knew what temperature to use in the oven, or how much of what ingredient to add, or what spice mixture. It was just this kind of, I couldn't believe it. It seemed unbelievable to me. And then over time, as I sort of watched and watched and watched and watched the patterns, I saw that it was really these four elements, salt, fat, acid, and heat, that were kind of the points on the compass. And I even went up to one of the chefs at one point and I said, I think I understand now. It's salt, fat, acid, heat. And he said, yeah, duh, we all know that. Like everyone knows that. And I'm like, no, everyone does not know that. Nobody told me. No one ever told me this. And it's not in any of these books, this huge stack of books that you told me to read. So why is this thing that's so intuitive to all you not ever communicated to people at home? And I never 
let that go. Like I even at that point was like, I'm going to write a book about this and it's going to be so short and so easy. It'll be 12 pages, three pages for each element. Um, But it ended up being, you know, almost 20 years for me to like, you know, get there from start to finish. Wow. What recipes from the book would you say had the biggest response from readers? Oh, um, probably the main one is the buttermilk chicken because it's so simple. And I mean, I also set out to make that my goal because I feel like most people don't cook whole animals, you know, and don't ha- they just sort of go to the grocery store and buy the pieces. So I wanted people to get more comfortable with that. And also the buttermilk chicken's kind of a no-fail recipe. Like you it's really hard to dry it out. It's really hard to make it wrong. And, because of um, all that buttermilk that it's soaking in? Yeah, it's like you know, you just salt it, you put it in buttermilk overnight and then the morning you pull, or the next day you pull it out and you roast it. That's it. There's nothing else. <laughs> and the buttermilk kind of has transformed the meat. It's it's tenderized it. It's added a little tang. The sugars in the buttermilk make the skin really dark and and shiny. And it's just kind of a delight. It's It does look simple enough that maybe I, I will try it at some point. I think you could do it. <laughs> it also works with just the thighs or really any part, just so you know. <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> How about the, the, the Persianish rice oh, dish yeah, with tadig. That's I mean, what's what's the special sauce there? Well, so tadig is I would say like the Iranian national food. <laughs> and it's just the crispy rice at the bottom of the pot. That's what tadig means is bottom of the pot. And people fight over it. It's a ritual every night at the table, you know, like some families have, you know, all these sort of ritualized like the father gets it the first piece or whatever but in my family is a free-for-all you're just (laughs) (laughs) but you like did not want to miss out you know it's just so crispy and crunchy and good and like you can sort of you can soak some part of it with yogurt or stew so it gets like the perfect amount of like soggy and crunchy and it's delicious but um making persian rice is not easy you have to it's a multi-step process you boil the rice for just the right amount of time and then you have to steam it just so and then the pan has to be at just the right temperature and Iranians are obsessive about using sort of like these inexpensive non-stick pots and there's just many you have to wrap the lid with a cloth to absorb the steam so it doesn't make the thing soggy so there were just so many steps and it felt so overwhelming even for me to get it right that I didn't feel like there that I could sort of convince people to do all of these steps but I also didn't want people to miss out on the crispy rice and so I sort of adapted it and made it a little bit simpler and did a few little tricks to to get there and now you know you can make it in any nonstick pan or a cast iron pan and I think a big part is also giving people the um ability to know that it's okay if it doesn't come out perfectly a lot of Iranians have to scrape their tadig out of the pot you know <laughs> so or chip it out I guess right so, right but it's just out. you just are after that crispiness hence the Persian ish yeah exactly because yeah as as is true I think with many immigrant communities like Iranians are very opinionated about their own cuisine and will let me know and so <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh the letters right the emails yeah yeah they will let me know all the ways i've let them down so um so i wanted to make sure that to tell everyone i didn't did not believe that this was the true you know traditional way but it was a good way to get close right oh that's great that's great after salt fat acid heat came out you know it was obviously a big a huge success um how did the reception change your life it's really overwhelming. Um, it's still overwhelming. I think in a lot of ways, a thing I did not expect was the loss of my anonymity. And I think that came certainly because of Netflix, like 
is in 220 countries. And so there was kind of nowhere I went where I wasn't recognized. And that was a big change because I'd spent my life, you know, I grew up like a brown girl with curly hair and a big nose in San Diego where like most of the kids in my school were white and blonde. I've always stood out. And so, and in some ways I've both stood out, but also been invisible. You know, I was never really like chosen for things. I've always had to work my way like work really hard and be really sort of focused and ambitious. And all of a sudden I went from being kind of invisible to very visible and very wanted and loved and praised. And that was in some ways destabilizing. And it still is a little bit destabilizing because I haven't changed on the inside, but the way the world reacts to me is different. Yeah, it's interesting. But you know, there's still some places I can go where no one says anything like Disneyland, like truly nobody's paying attention to me there. So (laughs) yeah. Well, that's, that's good to know where you can go and kind of like not be asked about like a recipe or something. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like making the Netflix series? Oh, my God. It was a whirlwind. You know, it was a very important to me to show a diversity of cultures and cuisines. And also, in a way, that would only make the point of the book and the show stronger, which is this is a universal formula. So um, we worked really hard with Netflix to figure out what countries we could go to, 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 you know, and it was nice if the something about the place had some meaning for me, or if I had friends there, or if I had spent time there. So um, in the end, we got to go to Italy and Japan and Mexico, and then we did one episode at home. And um, that was amazing. That was the first time I, w- I went back to Italy after 14 years, and I, I was shocked how much Italian I still understood and spoke. And, you know, I'm from San Diego, so I grew up going to Mexico a lot. Like, I've always loved Mexico. I'd never been to the Yucatan, which is where we filmed, but um, I feel really comfortable there. I love Mexican food. I love the diversity of all the cuisines. And um, it was also really special to get to go to Japan because that's such a culinary hub. And yeah, so I, I feel really lucky that I got to do that. Right. And and by saying by coming back home, you mean you shot one of the episodes in California? Yes, exactly. So we um, we shot it all over Berkeley and we visited Chez Panisse, actually. And then we we rented a home that we pretended was my house. And then because my apartment was too small to shoot in. <laughs> and <laughs> then, um, you know, I, I'm trying to remember what made it in. Like we went to the farmer's market, but I don't think those scenes made it into the show. But it was just sort of like showing you don't have to have some uh, huge international experience. You can just be home. And like this, this will make a difference in your everyday cooking. Absolutely. So so what else are you up to now? Um, now I'm working on another book. I've been working on it for several years. And um, that's well, it is. I'm just trying to, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Writing a book is not an easy thing. And also like I, I was somewhat disoriented when I, st- when I started to work on this because I, my only other experience of making a book was one that had been on my mind for so long, you know, for, for almost 20 years. And so I knew what it was that I was making. I had a clear vision and a path before me. And this time I've had a lot less clarity. It's been a kind of a muckier path to get to where I am. And also I still have lots of self self doubt, like any creative person does. Like, does anyone want this? Does anyone want these recipes? I mean, it's become basically a simple cookbook of the things I make at home and the things I make for my friends. It's not like it doesn't have some huge um, 
life-changing philosophy. <laughs> All right, so let's switch gears and talk about your current hometown. I mean, these days you live in the East Bay. Yes. Um, what's it like living there? Well, I live in Oakland now, which I love. And um, there's just, you know, like the weather here is amazing. It's warm. The, I, my garden is so happy. Um, I, ha- I There are so many different people from all over the world, all all around me, like around the corner, there are so many Eritrean and Ethiopian restaurants. This is a, like a international hub for those cultures. There's just um, sort of no end to what I can explore here in the East Bay. And so both culinarily and like environmentally and just culturally. And so I really love living here. I was wondering if you could talk about the food scene a little more in depth, like, you know, what's it like in the East Bay? Do you have a favorite restaurant or two or farmer's markets that you frequent? I mean, all of the farmer's markets here are wonderful. I love the Tuesday Berkeley farmer's market, um, but I don't always make it to the market. So the grocery stores that I really love are Berkeley Bowl and Monterey Market. Berkeley Bowl is actually in the TV series. They were both... Um, originally started by Asian families. By, and so there's just that kind of amazing relationship to produce at both stores where you can get truly some of the best produce I've ever seen in my life. And they both have relationships with farmers and produce um, purveyors. And so it's just, it's a treat every time you get to go there, like what you're going to find. This year, it's one of the things I've been really excited about at both at both grocery stores is these, there are these beautiful apples that when you cut into them, their flesh is pink or red. And they have historically been really hard to get your hands on. And you have to sort of have a relationship with this one farmer down near Salinas because he's the only person I know who grows them. And like I begged Chez Panisse to sell me some of theirs. And then I went to the store and there they were, these pink fleshed apples. It was just, I was like, this is amazing. You can just buy them at the grocery store. So that I really love. And then um, let's see, gro- like restaurant wise, there's like no end to the deliciousness, but I really love, um, there's a tiny little pizzeria on University Avenue in Berkeley called Rose Pizzeria. And it was opened by a couple of alumni from Zuni Cafe, which is a legendary restaurant in San Francisco. And it's, they just have like extraordinary buffalo mozzarella from, um, I think it's from West Marin and they have beautiful pizza and oysters and just really good Caesar salad. It's super simple, but I love, I love Rose Pizzeria. I also, you know, one of my favorite restaurants that I learned about as a baby cook, it was kind of where everyone who worked at Chez Panisse ate, is called um, the Pyeongchang Tofu House, which is in Oakland. I've like sung my love of Pyeongchang Tofu House ever since. And I wrote about it in the New York Times Magazine. They just have these beautiful um, soft tofu soups. These They're called soon tofu soups. But they also have like kimchi pancake that I love and bulgogi and just the best um, banchan, the little Korean snacks. They're all homemade. And it's just a really fun place to go. Yeah, I love Korean food. And it's like getting all those little banchan. They're just, you know, it's a meal in itself. Totally, you know, before totally. You, even get to the, you, know, you have to like course. control yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, East Bay sounds like amazing when it comes to, to, to restaurants and just the diversity of what you can get and the quality of it as well. Oh, totally. Oh, one other favorite that I love is um, as a San Diegan, I really love a flour tortilla. And my like my childhood burrito was the bean and cheese burrito. And so there's um, there's this kind of upscale restaurant called Comal, which is a fancy-ish Mexican restaurant, but they have two little um, taquerias. It's called Comal Next Door. There's one in Oakland and one in Berkeley. And they have this bean burrito 
They use the beans, the Pinquito beans from Rancho Gordo, which is uh, a company that's based up in, I think in, Sin- in Napa, but he he uh, works with a lot of farmers throughout Latin America to bring heirloom beans over. So that one of the beans is this little Pinquito bean. So they make refried beans with the Pinquito beans and they have like a perfect flour tortilla and perfect cheese. And it's just like the ultimate comfort food for me is the is the bean and cheese burrito from from Comal next door. Oh, that sounds really great. <laughs> All right, let's go outside the Bay Area now. Are there specific places you like to go, you know, elsewhere in California for fun? Like, do you go to find Pinot Noirs in Sonoma or do you go, you know, free solo in the High Sierra? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't. I would, I'm so clumsy. Um, um, well, one of my best friends lives in a town called Santa Paula down in Ventura County. And so a few times a year, I drive down to visit her. She she moved back to the um, avocado and citrus ranch that she grew up on. Santa Paula is just sort of like one valley over, one canyon over from Ojai. So we spend a lot of time in Ojai. There's this really sweet restaurant called Rory's Place. And um, that's opened by some alumni from some really nice restaurants in LA. But it's just like the sweetest, most delicious thing. There's Ojai Roti, which is like roast chicken that we love. And also there in Oxnard is this farm called Harry's Berries. And Harry's Berries, <laughs> I think they're th- they're like um, third, gen- third generation Japanese. Their ancestors were interned and they grow the most delicious strawberries. They grow um, that and like truly the most fragrant like knock you over feels like you're having an artificial like flavored art strawberry they're so wow, magical like, like candy totally yeah so like they're just they're 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 incredible so they have a bunch of different varieties but they do sell the um the fraise de bois or the marat de bois which are the are the wild strawberries that have the super 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 fragrant aroma so and those are available all throughout Southern California at different farmers markets but if you see Harry's berries like you will probably gasp at the price they're so expensive but they're truly some of the best strawberries you'll ever have. Wow, that's (laughs) that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's very much like my experience of travel is very much, I want to know what's grown here. I want to know what's made here, what's local to here. I want to understand that about a place. Like, even whenever I go somewhere new, I love just going to the regular grocery store just to see what they can get there. And I can understand more about the uh, people, you know? But besides Ventura, let's see, I also, I mean, probably my very favorite stretch of coast in the world is around Big Sur. And there I love Big Sur Bakery. Like, uh, it's so, so magical. It's so good. It's just a really fun place to stop and have a, like a baked good, or they make these really great pancakes. And um, it's just a little special sort of stop. And then north of here, I really love exploring the coast, you know, starting in Marin and like West Marin sort of it's a nice drive to go to Stinson Beach, Mirror Beach, Bolinas, and then farther up, um, there are just so many magical spots of coastline. And recently I was at Timber Cove, which is in Jenner, and it's just like this amazing mid-century hotel that's been restored, and they have a lovely restaurant there. When we go, sometimes my friends and I will go surfing in Bolinas, and then on the way back, we stop in San Rafael at this um, Puerto Rican restaurant called Soul Food. S O L, and um, and they just have like delicious roast chicken, and rice and beans, and it's just like feel you feel so warm and full on your way home. It's so nice. I mean, you've lived in California your whole life. I mean, what what makes the Golden State so special to you? 
I think for me, I love it here because there's everything. Like there are all of the different environmental um, and climate sort of experiences that you could have. There is just, there are endless cultures intermingling. It's such a diverse state. There's so many different cultures. And with that culture, with all those cultures comes food, you know, their food. So you get to learn about and experience so much. And then you learn, you're like, oh my God, wait, I didn't realize like this is the second largest sort of um, diaspora of Afghanis are here like 50 miles away from me. I didn't realize all these people from Eritrea and Ethiopia come here from everywhere in the world. So it's kind of this amazing experience, even just the difference in, in my experience of Southern Californian and Northern Californian Mexican food has been really interesting because I grew up eating flour tortillas and loving them and just loving the like lardy, warm, softness, chewiness. And then when I moved up here, everybody is all about the supremacy of the corn tortilla. And I I was always, and it kind of made me feel like a fraud. I was like, oh, I must not know anything, you know? And so for a long time, like probably 15 years, I thought I was just like, had bad taste or something. And then eventually I learned, oh no, actually flour tortillas are a traditional thing in Mexico. There is, you know, flour is grown in Sonora and it's this really special wheat that makes these delicious tortillas. It's just a different region of Mexico. And so there are, you know, the Mexicans who come up here come from a different part of Mexico and they brought with them their corn tortillas. And then in Southern California, because it's adjacent to Northern Mexico where flour tortillas really reign supreme, that's that's kind of why like Tex-Mex food and Southern Californian Mexican food are so sort of flour tortilla focused. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, you know, the, I mean, California is so big and so diverse and draws people from from everywhere that no matter how much you think, you know, you're always going to kind of like stumble on something that that you didn't know. Totally. And I'm driven in my life by curiosity. And so a newness and sort of the opportunity to try new things. So I love that about here is that there's no end to like if I decide I want to go somewhere within a three hour radius just for a weekend there are a million choices of places that I could go to that I've never been to before and experience the Yuba River or experience, you know, the like a sea ranch and the beautiful like, you know, like foggy coast. Um, so it's just this kind of way where I I feel so lucky to have that. And the other thing I feel so lucky to have, and I probably am biased, but I also do know that there is some factual <laughs> background to this, which is that we just have like the most extraordinary agriculture here. And even just the soil health of soil here in the Bay Area and within, I would say, a 350 mile radius is some of the most fertile, high mineral, high um, value soil in the world. And that has to do with things that happened, you know, millions and millions and millions of years ago. And so that what that means for us today is that we can grow so much produce. We can grow so many different kinds of things. And because over, you know, the last 200 years, so many people have come from different parts of the world. And this climate is so forgiving and generous to so many different kinds of um, plants. Like we have an amazing olive oil industry here. We have an amazing stone fruit industry. For a long time, um, California was you know, second only to turkey in apricot production. And so some of the most delicious stone fruits in the world come from here. Pomegranates, nuts, 
it's just like kind of like everything comes from here. So often when I'm in other parts of the country, I'm I sort of like always gasp with surprise when I am like looking at the box of produce in a grocery store or something or in a restaurant. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's our farm. It's the same farm. You know, it's the same farm. But when we get it here, it's one or two days out of the field. And when it has to be shipped across the country, it can be a couple weeks old. It tastes totally different. So you're right. Like the world's almost the best of the world's produce kind of like converged on California because they can all be grown here. Totally. It's it's truly so special. Well, you know, Samin, I wish we could talk to you for hours, but we, we're going to have to wrap up our episode soon. But before we let you go, uh, we're going to hit you with our California questionnaire. We give it to all of our special guests on California Now. Uh, we're going to ask you a I'm few rapid fire questions, <laughs> of course, <laughs> about all of your favorite California experiences. So okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Where do you live? I live in Oakland, California. Why there? Because there's such wonderful diversity and access to so many good ingredients and the beach. Who or what is your greatest California love? The beach. The beach is my greatest California love. What is the biggest misperception about California? Uh, That we're snobby, I think. Like the coastal elite thing. (laughs) Yeah. What is the stereotype that most holds true? Um, the open-mindedness. What's your favorite Golden State splurge? Ooh. (laughs) Um, I don't Could be Harry's Berries, I guess. Oh, yeah. Harry's Berries. Harry's Berries. (laughs) Okay. Time for a road trip. Where are you going? I definitely am going to go visit my friend Laurel who lives in Ventura, but I'll take the coastal route down the 101 and stop in San Luis Obispo where there's a great sandwich shop called High Street Deli. (laughs) <laughs> and my dog Fava's in the back of the car. And yeah, we take all the sort of side roads. I, I love I love staying off the five. And then we'll go to some um, citrus orchards. And usually I visit some of the sort of um, tr- like fruit tree purveyors down there. And I always buy fruit trees and bring them back and plant them in my garden. Sticking out the moon roof or something? Basically, or? Yeah. I mean, they're little. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you could decree an official state culinary experience, what would it be? Ooh, um, I think going to the farmer's market, getting really good crusty bread, you know, the tradition of bread here is so special in California, getting really good California cheeses, like either from Bellwether or um, Marin French or Cowgirl Creamery and getting wonderful produce. Probably in the summertime, I would say you have to get dry farm tomatoes from um, Dirty Girl Farm in Santa Cruz and having a picnic. Sounds nice. (laughs) What's your favorite way to play in California? (laughs) Go to the beach. (laughs) I get it. I'm a beach person. too. Um, Best California song. Ooh, um, uh, um, the, okay. I just watched the last black man in San Francisco again. And, um, there's a version of if you're going to San Francisco in that song that is so in that movie that is so beautiful. How would your California dream day unfold? Oh man, this is a hard question, but, (laughs) but a very good day for me that I've never had would be, I go to squirrel in Los Angeles for breakfast and have like my favorite turmeric orange juice. And one of her crazy, brilliant things, like she makes this fluffy French toast or these super fluffy pancakes. And then we would put together a picnic, go to the beach, spend the day at the beach, and then come home and shower and go out to dinner at one of my favorite restaurants in LA, like maybe Kismet or something like that and just hang out with my friends. That would be a really fun day. That sounds amazing. 
<laughs> Samin, this has been spectacular. Thank you so much for joining us on the 100th episode of California Now. What a treat. Thank you so much for having me. Samin Nasrat is the best-selling James Beard award-winning author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. To learn more about Samin, her cookbooks, her Netflix special, and to find some of her recipes online, visit chowsamin.com. That's chowsamin.com. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. We hope to see you in the Golden State soon. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. Our producer is Kate Eppelboim. Jessica Marshall is our technical lead. John Godfrey is our editorial director. And the theme song is by Aaron Taos. Additional music by Casey. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're considering a trip to the Golden State, be sure to order your copy of the all-new and entirely free 2024 California Visitor's Guide. The 196-page magazine features an exclusive interview with Zoe Deschanel and is absolutely loaded with travel tips and tricks. Order your free copy today at visitcalifornia.com.